Hey beautiful teachers, I'm Nicola Canton from Vibrant Music Teaching. Welcome to the show that's about you. Today we're heading over to Carmen Carpenter in Pennsylvania. Carmen describes herself in this interview as being late to using games, but I say you're never too late to join this party. If you've never used games to teach, perhaps this will inspire you to try it this week. Carmen, welcome to the show. So good to have you here. Well, thanks for having me. I'm glad like to be to, here. We like to start with a little game where we, you tell me two lies and one truth about yourself. One thing that's true. And I'll try to guess which one is which. Okay. So I had to think about this because I always mess up this game. I Okay. So here's what I'm going to say. So I was born and raised in Pennsylvania. PA, as people call it. And my grandmother was also a piano teacher. And I started taking piano lessons when I was about five. Okay, those all sound so plausible. I don't think you're from Pennsylvania, though. I don't know. But I, I'm just going to guess. I'm not. What gave me away? <laughs> Might be something in your accent. And then, uh, did you start? I'm going to say your grandmother was also a piano teacher. She was. Correct. You got them all. Nice. (laughs) Yes. So she passed down the legacy? Kind of, yes. So my grandmother was quite a bit older. And so she was in her 40s when my mother was born. And so when I was a little girl, she was already quite old and had retired from teaching and all of that. So I only got bits of of teaching from her and then my mother didn't play so it kind of passed a generation (laughs) yeah but maybe you had the idea that well people in my family can do this like this is an opportunity that could come up so absolutely that's a bit about your family I guess or outside of teaching Mm -hmm. what about your teaching can you pick three words to describe your teaching style perhaps three words that you might put on an ad if you were advertising your teaching Okay, well, so I call my studio Triple C, and that's actually my initials. But also, um, I've come up with three words that I think describe my teaching that start with C, or one of them doesn't technically start with C. So it's creative. Mm -hmm. And then I say unconventional. Okay. And the last one is community, because we're building a musical community. So those oh, wow. are my three words. So the, the creative part, of course, comes into play with the not only the way that I teach, but what I encourage from the kids is some creativity and then unconventional in that they aren't like the lessons that my mother gave, right? They're different in that they have a different feel and focus. They're probably way more fun and hopefully they're way more fun <laughs> and so that's where the unconventional part comes into i think i do a lot i surprise people a lot when they're coming in they're like oh that's really different than what i was expecting mm. in a good way i'm sure most of the time <laughs> and if it's not in a good way then they're not students that you that are right for exactly. your studio right exactly that is exactly my philosophy yeah 
So what was your own musical upbringing like? Your your grandmother was too old to teach you herself or was retired at the time. So what was your teacher like? When did you start lessons and how did you get on with it? Okay. I did not start when I was five. I was actually in fourth grade when I started piano lessons and I had certainly this idea that I wanted to take piano lessons and our mom did want us to take lessons, but it took a long time for us to get an actual piano. And so I was in about fourth grade before my family could afford to get a piano. And at that time we started taking lessons from our school music teacher. Her name was Mrs. Weitzel and we left her and it was really good. Uh, highlights of that experience would be her telling me, you actually have to count the notes. And that was like a huge light bulb. Oh, and, um, and of course then, um, my, my musical or piano background specifically is really spotty from there because then in sixth grade, I started taking saxophone lessons because my family couldn't afford to do both piano and saxophone lessons. So I did that in junior high. And then in high school, I was in choir and my choir director taught me piano at that point, because at that point I had put away the saxophone and was gearing for a career in teaching choir or something like. And so I took piano lessons at that point, And then of course, all through college. And um, so I had wonderful teachers. I can't really say anything other than praise about all of them. They were all very different from each other, had very different styles, but brought out different things with me and for me. And so I'm just really grateful for that. And my band director too has a huge impact on me. Although he didn't teach me piano, he was, he's the reason that I teach. So. Well, that's a wonderful um, patchwork, I guess, of music growing up and it's wonderful to hear that you waited all that time knowing that you wanted to take piano. I think mm -hmm. just to clarify for people, fourth grade is age nine or 10. Is that, is that right? I would have to actually do that math, but that's about right. Something around there, <laughs> that right? That sounds right to me. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so it wasn't an early start for you, but then you also moved to saxophone. What made you, I can see how the appeal of a new instrument made you move over? What made you give up the saxophone? Did you find it just wasn't a good fit? Probably the biggest reason was from junior high to high school, the difference in the programs and the teachers involved was quite a bit different. And then I had an older sister who was also musical and she had gone into choir after having done band in junior high. And so I pretty much did everything that she did. So I did the same thing. She went to college to be a music teacher. So I did too. Of course, she now makes her living as an attorney. So she makes way more money than me, but you know, I did not go to law school. <laughs> I stopped at that point. <laughs> she might make more money than you, but you get to teach music. So I think you won. Indeed, it's way more fun. <laughs> So I know you said you had a wonderful experience with all those teachers and it's definitely not to badmouth any of them in any way, but is there anything you wish you'd met a little bit earlier in your studies, improvisation or playing games to learn music theory or something else? Really improvisation. I would, I would say that playing using chords 
didn't come up until college. And at that point, they were just part of the musical theory experience. But as I have gotten older, I really see that as the life skill of a pianist is being able to read chords on the page, to improvise with them. That is probably, if I had to boil it down to one thing, it would be that. If somebody had taught me how to play with chords, how to improvise with those, how to accompany with those, not until I was in, um, it would have been my freshman year of college. And we had to do, since I, I was actually a vocal major instead of piano, I had to take a proficiency exam. And at the proficiency, I only had to take one semester before I could pass it. But that teacher, we had to do an accompanying portion. And she taught me to like, look at the page, see the chord that's there, use that to help you sight read through the piece. And sudden, that really was a light bulb moment. Yeah, all great skills to have for so many of the things you had been doing already. And right. for your future, if you were going to sing and accompany yourself or accompany other singers, all of that. I mean, so, such useful skills right. to have. So when and how did you actually get into teaching yourself? Well, I, I went to college and got a degree in music education. And I did teach school. I taught elementary music for several years and always just on the side, taught privately, taught some piano lessons, taught some voice lessons. Then about five years ago is when I moved to Pennsylvania. And I, at that point, decided to sort of kind of retire from public school teaching and to try my hand at making an income with fully teaching lessons. And at the time that we moved, I was still teaching some voice and some piano, and I did all private lessons at that time. And then I have segued towards more group piano lessons, small groups, buddy lessons, partner lessons, that kind of thing. And have, as my voice students have aged out, have filled their spots with piano instead. Did you find there was just more demand for piano or do you prefer teaching piano? Well, I, I feel like I prefer teaching it and there's, there's kind of a long involved, that would be like a whole nother podcast <laughs> a reason. Um, as far as voice lessons go, I begin to feel, whereas with piano, I feel like my ability to adjust and change with the times just continues to grow. Whereas with voice, I feel like it shrinks. I don't know if that makes sense. Yeah. Because no. the basics are still always important, but what's valued now, as opposed to what was valued when I was trained as a singer, is so different that I find myself becoming, yeah, irrelevant. That's the only word I can think of to use for it. Yeah. And it sounds like you're just more excited about keeping up with what's going on in piano. So that motivates you're you to probably, do it, which keeps you relevant, right? Right. Oh, yes. I'm sure you're totally right. <laughs> so can you think of a particular student that has changed something about how you teach or something about how you do business? 
I don't know if I could come up with one specific student. I have probably more a particular type of student that's really changed the way that I do things. I have noticed over the years more and more children who struggle with anxiety or ADHD or, um, you know, autism spectrum, those kinds of students. And although I don't consider myself specialized in those areas, those areas though have made me really think about what I'm doing, how I'm doing it. And, um, and, and taking patience really to a different level and beyond just tolerance into truly trying to understand where they're coming from, trying to make adjustments as needed. But as I have seen that more and more, that has really made my teaching very different. That's really interesting, especially what you said about going beyond tolerance. I think many teachers do maybe get stuck at that point, at least for a while, where they're working with it to a certain degree, but they are just Mm -hmm. really tolerating the situation rather than being more unconventional and thinking outside the box and finding ways to work with those students successfully. Right. Absolutely. And I do feel like probably everybody could say they see that more and anxiety in particular, like right now I'm on sort of a little um, hyper-focus on trying to figure out how to work with anxious students and just trying to help them with that as I can. Certainly I'm not a medical professional, (laughs) but just the small things that I can do to help them yeah deal with that and be successful absolutely which often make a big difference um even if it Mm. is a small thing it's you showing that you're happy to meet them where they are that you want to work with Mm. them that you respect the way that they already are and they don't Mm. need to change um to be part of piano lessons i'd say i think many of us have seen an increase in the anxiety levels during the pandemic as well. So I'm sure that's contributed to your focus on it because (laughs) students just being more isolated, less connected with others and having more to legitimately worry about (laughs) has made it really challenging. Yeah. What's the biggest mistake you think you've made in your teaching so far? This could be something more as a trend, like I used to always do this, or it could be like this one time that stands out to you that you're like, if I could just change it. Um, I love the way you say so far. We always <laughs> so have far. opportunities to make more. <laughs> Definitely. Always. I, again, I have the worst memory. And so specifics escape me. I do think I am a little late to the embracing of games and those kinds of things. And when I did get there, I kind of saved them till the end and saved them for if you practiced, they were more like rewards, right? And um, it took me a while to get to the point where I was like, no, these need to be not necessarily the core of what happens, but definitely the best avenue for teaching theory in particular and lots of other skills. But, um, But yeah, so I feel like I was kind of late. Yeah, I mean, 
but there are teachers listening who are definitely not on that yet. So, right. you know, they're not late. Nobody's late. You just find it when you find Come it. And you do, yeah, you jump <laughs> on the train. I Join certainly us. came from the same approach as you. I mean, I initially was like, okay, so we saved the last five minutes. If you're good, you get a game for the last five minutes. Right. And I've completely flipped my thinking on it, as you know, um, mm. to it's part of how I teach. It shouldn't be a reward. It's not something we save. It's something we savor all the way through the plan, right. I think. Yeah. So if you could turn back time, knowing what you know now, right to the beginning of your teaching journey, is there any advice you think you could give your younger self that you would actually listen to at the time? Oh, gosh. Oh, <laughs> that wouldn't funny. fall on deaf ears. <laughs> Oh, man, I think of my younger self, and I was just so idealistic um, and probably stubborn. Um, so I think probably just to remind myself that what I had was enough. This, this is who you are. Who you are is great just the way you are. And you don't have to try to impress. You don't have to try to prove you are enough. I think those kinds of messages are the ones that might have given me a big sigh of relief, <laughs> a big, oh, good, right? I think proving myself. I feel like I've gone through, particularly in my 20s, trying to prove that I was good at this, prove that I... Well, probably just that, right? Just proving that I was good enough. Yeah, looking for that validation from some imaginary source, mm -hmm. I guess. <laughs> right. Really, it's just about running your own race and, and doing it yourself. Right. Mm -hmm. And it and it is this imaginary kind of source, right? That there's nobody demanding that proof other than myself. It's yeah. just me. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yep. So is there anything you think people outside our industry misunderstand about what we do as teachers? Oh, golly, that one's funny. Um, I really think people think this is a hobby, right? This is my side gig. Um, I think when, when you say outside of the industry, I think to like some of my parents, who sort of don't understand that, you know, I'm juggling a lot of things and what happens inside of the lesson is like this teeny tiny part <laughs> of all the other stuff I do that I spend hours each week planning for these 26 students that I have that I spend hours educating myself, that I spend loads of time looking at music and trying to figure out what the best music for that kid is or whatever it might be. I think that people tend to just laser focus on that two and a half hours per day that I'm actually teaching without seeing the five or six hours that morning and afternoon, early afternoon, I have spent getting ready, making it a great experience for everyone. I think those are the things that people don't understand. I don't think they understand. No, this really is a 40 or more hour a week job. 
it isn't 10 hours a week. So true. It's like the, the now so ubiquitous poster of the iceberg that is used for so many things, you know. The above the water is like the lesson time and then underneath the water is everything else you do to prepare right. for the lesson time. Right. I like the duck. You know, the, the yeah. duck is just swimming calmly on the water, but what's happening underneath is those little eggs are going. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. So finally then, Carmen, I want you to imagine a teacher I who's feeling pretty uncertain about what they do, maybe they feel like someone needs to give them that validation from the outside to say that, yep, you're doing all right, kid. Um, and maybe it's about their business, maybe it's about their teaching, or maybe they just feel generally unsure. Is there any advice that you could share with them? Probably the biggest thing I think that was helpful for me was kind of like one of those seven habits. It's uh, begin with the end in mind. So, and I, and I think you did, you did, you did a, a webinar or something on your ideal student. You know, what is your ideal student after they've been with you six or seven years look like? And that, that is really helpful. I think, think about what you want that student to look like at the end of their time with you. What skills do you want them to have? What kind of repertoire would you like them to have? Whatever that might be. And then, just keeping that in mind, everything else sort of falls into place. Like what you're going to teach, how you're going to teach it, that will really help move you in that direction. But I also think that there isn't a right way, you know, that your way is the right way, the way that you want to do it is the right way. If you want to march through a method series, then, and that works for you and your students, go for it, you know, or if you want to teach chords and improvisation and that's your jam, then do it. And I, I just think there's a lot to be said for the fact that there's not necessarily one right way to do this. Yeah, very well said. And I like what you said about starting with the end in mind, because I think that can also help you to put the blinkers on when things are not relevant to you. Because so many teachers are looking around saying, oh, but I should be doing that or I should be doing that. If you look ahead and say, well, my ideal student after 10 years, they're able to accompany a choir, just as an example, Mm -hmm. then Mm -hmm. your priority is not on sonata form, perhaps. It's on other things. So if you're seeing a great idea and you're like, but my students can't possibly get to that. Well, they're heading a different direction and you have to have faith in in your goals as a teacher as well. Mm -hmm. Right. And I think about that, um, your vibe attracts your tribe, that little saying. And, And you'll attract the right student, just like we were saying before. If they don't get what you're doing, then there's a teacher out there for them. It's just not necessarily you. And when you lose students, that's the other thing I think would be good advice is to, if a student moves on to another teacher, someone else will fill their place. And and I've had to learn that myself. You know, I get sad when they move to different studio, but I know another student will come along that's the right fit and, and all of that. Yes. Very, very true. Very hard to remember when you're starting out, but worth keeping in mind all the same. 
Thank you so much for doing this with us, Carmen. It was so great to chat to you. Well, thanks for having me. It was good to chat with you one-on-one. -on -one. I feel so honored. Thanks again. <laughs> thanks for listening. Do you love this show? Then please share your favorite episode with a teacher friend who you think might enjoy it and benefit from it. If you resonated with today's story, then the Vibrant Music Teaching membership is probably a good fit for you too. Find out more at vibrantmusicteaching.com.